Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Uh, good morning, Fred. Good morning, and we're happy to have joining us today, Jim Hughes, University Professor, Dean Emeritus at the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. Great to have you with us, Jim. And it's great to be here. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Alan. Jim, you are a co-author of a new report from the Center for Advanced Infrastructure and Transportation at Rutgers titled Herbs, Burbs, and the Immigration Locomotive. Give us a bit of background on what you're looking at here and some of the key findings. Yeah, this is about the fourth in a series of recent studies that look at uh, the broad New York four-state metropolitan region. It comprises 35 counties uh, in uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania, with New York City the epicenter. And it's probably the most powerful economic node in the United States and certainly one of the most powerful globally. Uh, and we've been looking at changing demographics, both in terms of composition, spatial distribution, and the like. Uh, and this one looked particularly at the components of population change, that is, births, deaths, uh, uh, in-migration uh, uh, from uh, international origins, and then uh, internal mi migration within the United States. Uh, and the basic finding is that for the New York region, and I'll get into sort of the variations on the pattern nationally, uh, is that uh, immigration is the largest component of population growth. Uh, and the region, even with that powerful locomotive, uh, the region has lost population uh, in 2017 and 2018. Uh, so if we didn't have immigration, uh, it would not be quite a demographic apocalypse, but we would be heading into really a, uh, a demographic shortfall era. Uh, and basically, we have very, very low fertility rates. Uh, the average uh, fertility rate is about 1.74 in the United States. That, it, that, that essentially is a metric saying uh, the average woman uh, is now producing 1.73 children, 7.4 children. Uh, at the peak of the baby boom in 1957, it was 3.8. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was about to ask you what it was then. And, you know, I mean, there's it, it, such a stark difference, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And replacement level fertility is 2.1. So if every woman produced 2.1 children, uh, uh, that would lead to stable population in the long run. So at one point in the 1.7 range, uh, that indicates demographic decline. Um, and, and these are these are fundamental forces here. I mean, these this this is this is the the zeroth order term in the in the in the Taylor series expansion of the whole darn thing, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is uh, the key situation uh, for industrialized nations globally, as well as the United States. And the conclusion is uh, by. Uh, uh, mid-decade uh, population will be flat within the entire nation and, if, and even maintaining current immigration 
uh, we'll be experiencing a declining population by the beginning of the 22nd century. But the, for Western Europe, uh, for uh, the United States, Without immigration, uh, it's population decline, which means less talent, shrinking workforce, uh, less taxpayers to support all of us aging baby boomers and our, us aging pre-baby boomers and the like. Yeah, we, we, need, we need a lot of support. <laughs> Come on, folks, help us. <laughs> and the one, the one, yeah, the within the within the country. I mean, some. Uh, I mean, this this is the case for. Uh, sort of the global cities such as New York, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Chicago, uh, and the like. It's a little bit different for some of the Sunbelt cities uh, because they are gaining domestic uh, uh, migration. For example, uh, uh, for the past eight years, 2010 to 2018, the, the entire Northeast region lost 2.2 million people domestically. That is 2.2 million more people moved out than moved in. Uh, Midwest is the same. But the South had a uh, domestic migration of plus 3 million. So uh, they're getting high levels of immigration, plus they're getting uh, their destination for movements within the United States. So uh, they are not experiencing quite the difficulties that uh, a New York region uh, does. Uh, so this is just one dimension, really, uh, of, of population change uh, uh, in terms that will affect uh, uh, transportation, because certainly we have generational change with uh, the baby boom starting to fade away, millennials assuming dom a dominant position, and then Gen Z uh, defining the new uh, uh, entry-level workforce and the like. Uh, but immigration is is interesting in terms of patterns of travel demand. I think initially, in many cases, uh, they're heavily dependent on public transportation. Uh, even though their start uh, new uh, immigrant arrivals are starting uh, to disperse, uh, they still concentrate heavily in areas of housing affordability uh, and the availability of public transportation. Uh, but as time goes by, other studies have shown uh, they tend to follow the U.S. model where they desire to have cars uh, and the like. And I think uh, may, that may be one of the reasons why we've had some uh, uh, decline in public transit usage the last uh, uh, several years. Uh, but that's that's clearly uh, redefining uh, uh, the metropolitan regions uh, as we go forward. Alan, what are your thoughts about the, the what, what you're hearing here and the impact on... on the, well, the I mean, computers? these are the fundamental forces. I mean, these are, this is, this is something that, uh, that basically drives everything and, and in a sense drives the economy. It's a, it's a situation that I guess Japan has been dealing with with some time, for some time. Europe has been dealing with for some time. And and in some sense, uh, you know, now the and the issue is is it's coming to the United States. We've had we've had such an expansion over the the past whatever number hundred years and so on, and and um, and all of a sudden this thing seems to be seems to be peaking out, and I think has implications. I think it also has implications as to where geographically in the uh, in the cities people locate. Uh, as I've suggested, there's a lot of interest in in smart cities and and much of the let's say the consultant 
planner interest is in you know the the mega towers and the glass towers and the central pieces um but uh, i guess i wonder whether or not then i think jim may also wonder as to whether or not people really do go to the center or do they go to the to the first and second and third outer rings and in fact um, you know create um, uh, lower density and live in much lower density areas and and maybe we should be instead of talking about uh, smart cities talk about smart communities and smart villages but again that's the broader discussion jim uh, your thoughts yeah i think this is also linked to what has become a very very potent public policy issue the past uh several years and it's really housing costs uh and housing affordability and uh, whether it's a suburb, inner suburb that's uh, resisting new development near public transportation centers, uh, or if it's even in uh, Manhattan in New York where they're trying to densify certain neighborhoods and the like to take advantage of uh, uh, infrastructure to, to produce more housing to hopefully alleviate some of the housing cost problem. Uh, but boy, is there public resistance uh, to that, which uh, may be a force uh, of pushing development outward and pushing people outward just because of affordability. So the housing cost problem has a direct transportation connotation. And that's been realized for a decade or more where uh, when you're looking at housing costs and affordability, you have to add in transportation costs to that equation. Uh, because, yeah, we could build housing way out on the metropolitan periphery and it may cost certainly less than half of what it would be in the center. But boy, would your transportation costs soar uh, if you were placed in that type of a location. Uh, the other immigration problem, at least for like for the New York region, uh, which has always been an immigration gateway going back to Ellis Island uh, and the like, is that uh, it's still a destination but now there's competition uh, for the new arrivals because immigration destinations are starting to disperse throughout the United States and areas that certainly are uh, labor short uh, really uh, have put forth policies and programs to try to attract uh, new arrivals. Uh, and they have the cost advantage, plus a lot of the amenities uh, that were once uh, you know, in the po early post-recession period, um, all the all the cool things that Brooklyn had, uh, uh, we're starting to see a, a Brooklynification of other areas of the country. So you have your coffee shops and all those amenities that are drawing people in. So uh, New York region once had a clear monopoly in a number of dimensions. Uh, uh, it's still, you know, the place for for the high order millennials and the next gen workforce. They still want to be there, but outside of that elite, uh, there's other competition. Well, you know, I guess in some sense this has been going on also for some time because uh, when I emigrated here, uh, you know, from my with my parents uh, through Ellis Island. Uh, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the only place my father could get a job was in Pittsburgh or something like that. And that's how I ended up in Pittsburgh, uh, into the, in the interlands. Uh, but yes, there is an enormous amount of attraction, uh, especially in the South, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh basically, um, uh, 
draw from the New York metropolitan area, and and this is basically what you're reporting. Yeah, approximately, uh, you know, more than not quite half of uh, uh, the immigration flow uh, is heading to the south directly now. And that's a completely different pattern. Maybe it's more like 40%, but that's still a huge, huge flow. And that was not the case, uh, let's say, back in the 1940s and 50s. Oh, it's cer- yeah, it certainly wasn't. What, uh, there wasn't air conditioning. I guess that makes a big difference, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, yeah, and 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 of course the the implication on mobility is there, and in some sense, um, you know, part of the reasons why we all focus on this uh, sort of uh, potential opportunity to to uh, create affordable uh, shared um, on-demand mobility for for everyone using uh, automation is that uh, is to be able to serve a a lower density uh, type of, of development. And as Jim pointed out, you know, it's it's not low income housing that we want, is that we'd like to have a, or affordable housing, it's, a, it's affordable living. And the affordable living piece uh, really has to include the, the mobility piece. And, um, and uh, uh, some of the lower density areas uh, with conventional uh, transit, there just uh, that's not uh, it's not affordable to provide uh, that mobility uh, to those developments. So, um, one of the ways to possibly do that is to come up with a uh, new new mode of transportation and mobility that uh, that is affordable. And uh, the affordable piece comes out of um, removing the labor cost. Uh, but that doesn't mean necessarily a reduction in jobs because most of the labor that's that's replaced um, in that is is free labor that we offer ourselves when we drive ourselves. And so if now we're being driven and we uh, we then uh, contribute to uh, to the economy and the, and the scale of that mobility, we might have the opportunity uh, to develop that mobility or at least, you know, that's. Um, that's what the catechism is. Um, whether the catechism is, is correct, we'll, we'll wait and see. But a lot of us are working to try to make that uh, uh, that uh, catechism uh, uh, work. And eventually, I guess that that would have a, a big impact on on things like land use and uh, and planning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th- I think t- to me, I think it sort of levels it out. It it makes it more dense. It's a, it's actually the what we've been talking about for so long is this transit-oriented development. Uh, the transit-oriented development. Just a side comment. I mean, there's some transit-oriented development going on in West Windsor. I'll point out. Uh, but to get to the transit stop, guess what? People have to do. They have to walk across parking lots. Now, it seems like a yeah. seems like an insult. My goodness, all the people that get to drive into to the Princeton Junction Station get to actually park their cars closer uh, than where the people that live uh, that they've created a living space for, and then to somewhat insult them, uh, make you actually walk through the competition, uh, the parking lots for the cars that people drive from who knows where to Princeton Junction. I don't know. Uh, it just seems funny to me, but um, anyway, uh, just yeah, a side a long comment. Way to go. There are some excellent examples of design, but on the other hand, there are 
there are dysfunctional situations that you just described there uh, in West Windsor. And, you know, even to take advantage of really the public infrastructure that's in place, you really have to look at the walkable infrastructure of people accessing that uh, without making it too onerous to get to it. Right. And and that probably means they'll make people walk through parking lots. Uh, yeah. And I it just noted when I took the train down to Union Station recently, um, the enormous amount of uh, gentrification that's going on around Union Station in terms of the of the living units <clears throat> that are uh, within easy walking distance uh, to uh, to Union Station. And and uh, that was sort of ple somewhat pleasant to see, but you know, then you have to worry about you know what kind of gentrification went on there and what happened to the people that used to live there. But anyway, that's a that's another issue. <laughs> Any comments, Jim? No, I agree with your assessment. Uh, and we have a lot of work in front of us. I mean, to to really plan for a future with with these new demographic dimensions, with the new technology dimensions. So I think a lot of places are really grappling uh, you know, with what actual what actually to do. But there, I think there is also uh, a growing awareness, uh, you know, as unemployment rates go so low, uh, even in areas uh, distant from, uh, let's say, the, the regional center, uh, they need workers too for their economic base. They're having a difficult time in finding bodies and the like. And they're starting to recognize there, you know, there's all, you know, new populations out there that uh, could really help them, uh, but they've got to come, they've got to come full circle with the housing issue because if you you're in an area that's zoned for two or three acres, uh, you're not going to be able to put any type of affordable housing there. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yes. These are very challenging problems and challenging issues, and um, they have been around for some time. But I guess there, you know there are a lot of people that, such as yourself, that they're you know really um, working to try to improve things. We'll continue in just a moment, but this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor this week, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF symbol. M-O-T-O. -O. For more information, head to M-O-T-O-E-T-F.com. ETFs, if you're not familiar with them, are a great way to spread risk, allowing you to invest in a category of stocks. You already know that we are focused on transportation and mobility, and the M-O-T-O ETF is too, so definitely worth checking out. Some other news to get to from these latest smart driving car newsletter. Alan, the car and driver has a report about software from comma.ai, a company selling an aftermarket dash cam and wiring harness for under $1,000. They're able to control the steering, brakes, and throttle with some, uh, with some vehicle makes. And the piece has the headline, is a $1,000 aftermarket add-on as capable as Tesla's autopilot and Cadillac Super Cruise? And this is called Open Pilot. Pretty interesting. It is a, a, a very interesting, and, and the guys at Comma AI have been around for, for some time. They got themselves into trouble a couple of years ago um, in the aftermarket area, I guess uh, maybe making um, some claims that they uh, – 
that they couldn't really hold up to, but uh, but apparently, you know, the the, the software is getting better, <clears throat> um, and um, and there's also I think I post on there a, a, a video that uh, basically mm -hmm. compares, uh, at least in the, in one. Um, small area in Kentucky, uh, the operation of um, of uh, Tesla's autopilot and uh, comma AIs, and with uh, some comments by the reporter there, <clears throat> and uh, this is I put that out there just uh, for people to realize there is potentially an aftermarket opportunity here. Many of the cars that are being produced today uh, now have, um, because of uh, the intelligent uh, cruise control opportunity, opportunities that control electronically both um, the throttle and the brake and do that electronically, uh, that the cars are set up as they come off the assembly line uh, to have that opportunity. And if you know the codes, uh, then you should be able to splice in there and do that. Now, once you start splicing into your car, who knows uh, what happens to the warranty and so on, and, and who ends up being liable and whatever, uh, if something uh, bad happens, uh, and where the finger is going to be pointed. So it opens up all those cans of worms, but certainly the, the, there is that aftermarket uh, there could be an aftermarket opportunity, which is what comma AI is going after. Uh, what the cars uh, don't tend to have, or maybe they do, but I don't. That's not where comma AI is focusing on. Is is the sensor, and this basically what they're doing is using vision, and so they're using their their own camera or the camera in an iPhone, and basically giving uh, selling you the wiring harness to go into the uh, uh, the um, the uh, car systems with then the codes that uh, that basically allow that software to then uh, uh, control the throttle and the brake and uh, perform uh, the uh, uh, the lane keeping and the um, the intelligent cruise control using uh, just a camera and just doing image processing on the, on the frames. Um, and um, at some point, does this become good enough to run on your on your iPhone and um, and uh, basically provide the intelligent cruise control um, that uh, some of the other systems provide? We'll wait and see. But there there is potentially this aftermarket opportunity. Uh, I don't imagine that the OEMs are all that uh, thrilled about this because. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that they necessarily like having um, um, outside entities go in and tap into uh, basically their codes that control the, the throttle and the brake. <clears throat> and also, I, I fail to point out, also have uh, electric motors on the steering column so that you can actually uh, go in there and uh, control that motor uh, to, um, uh, to turn the steering wheel to do the, uh, the uh, automatic uh, lane keeping and lane centering. <clears throat> and uh, you know, these are uh, key tech, uh, hardware technologies that all you need now is code to go in there and control them so you don't have to go through the hardware costs of, of the, of the um, uh, uh, electromechanical devices that have to do the steering, the braking and the throttling. And so it really makes it easy in some sense uh, to be an aftermarket entity and say, okay, I'll just uh, sense the environment around me and then um, send to the throttle brake and, 
and, and steering systems uh, what to do to, to uh, stay in the center of the lane and not crash into things in front of me. Uh, what they didn't really demonstrate in the videos is, is the automated emergency braking aspect of this and uh, how good uh, uh, the comma AI system is in determining uh, um, objects that are in the lane ahead and whether or not you can pass underneath them, uh, which uh, leads us to the you know some of the fundamental challenges with autopilot uh, as to whether or not it, it can in fact um, determine whether or not an object that is in a lane ahead is, that is stopped uh, can be uh, passed underneath or should we start applying the brakes hard to not hit it and um, so that seems to be where the technology is these days and uh, comma ai is out there um, pushing their stuff again and i just uh, thought that the readers might uh, might then take the information as it's out there and make up their own minds. Interesting, and apparently they're doing this with with a single camera. I mean, when you talk about a Tesla or some of the other vehicles, you're talking about multiple cameras, you know, surrounding the vehicle. So. Sure, uh, but you know, once you buy something, do you really um, uh, care to see it? Um, yeah, sure, if you're changing lanes and so on, but this thing doesn't doesn't change lanes. Um, so uh, what you're really focused on is what's ahead. What you really don't, you know, the 80% of the problem is not hitting things that are ahead of you. Uh, other 20% of the problem is, you know, what's coming at you from the left and from the right uh, that you really then need a, a greater panoramic uh, view, which is usually done with, with additional cameras. And uh, yes, um, uh, in some sense, you can solve 80% of the problem with just one camera. Um, um, but um, again, um, do you want an 80% solution or do you want a 90% solution or do you want a 99% solution? I don't think anybody has a 99% solution yet, except for maybe Waymo. You know, for, for older vehicles, there have been some really cheap dash cams on the market for a while now that will give you a warning when you get too close to the vehicle in front of you, you know, an, an audible warning. So. Sure, yeah, the, the, the warning stuff is there. The problem with the warning stuff, it's good to have warning, but my goodness, if a system knows that in fact you're gonna hit something, why isn't it applying the brakes? Or, um, and if you're about to go off the, out of your lane, why isn't it keeping in you in the lane? Why does it just have to warn you? Why not do it? And right. so I guess that's what comma AI is trying to do. And that's what, you know, a number of, uh, of us uh, have tried to do in the past and so on, and a number of people are working on it. <laughs> you, have a, you have a link to some other technology uh, related to this, uh, a link to a YouTube video of the Cruise Origin GM announcement, and they're highlighting the use of, of thermal sensors which we sure. really haven't talked about too much. We haven't talked about too much with thermal sensors, but thermal sensors are, are you know, really important, especially with night driving. I, in my own case, not to bring out my own cases, but I think I've hit six deer in my life. And, and, and you know, they come at you from, from the left or from the right. If, if I'm on a two-lane road at night, you know, and there's no traffic coming ahead of me, I drive down the center of the road, so I have an equal chance to, if I see them to, you know, try to do something about so they, do, they don't hit me or I don't hit them. I don't know out of the six, I don't know how many, probably three have hit me and I've hit three. Uh, but out of the total six, there have been collisions associated with them. 
and and so you know with deer it's i think uh and animals it's 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 it could be an important piece and of course with pedestrians and you know so many people out there at night you know walk around with dark clothing and uh hopefully um you know they um they heat it up and so therefore um that clothing so it can be seen um, with the thermal cameras that that, uh, that are really tough to see with um, in, in the normal uh, visual uh, range. So um, uh, yeah, um, it's, again, it's, a, it's another piece to put on top so that we can get beyond the 80% solution uh, to the 90 and 99% solutions. You know, and uh, it's hard to find anybody in New Jersey who hasn't at least had a close call with deer and around the, some other parts of the country, you've got moose on the road, and that's even worse. Oh man, uh, moose! I, uh, you don't even want to talk about that because because then you're in real trouble. But yeah, I mean, and this is Jersey. I mean, what the heck? I, mean, I can't imagine what it's like, and who knows where. For New Jersey, given that uh, we are the epicenter of suburban sprawl, uh, that is. Uh, it's just a big salad bowl for deer, so you know, we we're overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, we go out there, we go buy the plants and feed them every day. You know, we might as well just buy corn and put it out there. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then we go, oh, these these are you know, deer won't eat these bull. I mean, you know, they, then you go back and you go buy some more and you plant them some more. <laughs> yeah, we are a salad bowl for deer. And well, we are the Garden State, right? Right, <laughs> right. Jim? So we might as well Absolutely. be the Garden State for deer. <laughs> Alan, the, the NTSB has released information into its investigations of two Tesla accidents, uh, one in March of last crashes, year. Crashes, crashes. Crashes, okay. In, in March of last year in Mountain View, California, one from March of 2018 in Delray Beach, Cal in Florida, uh, the drivers in both suffered fatal injuries. They were killed. What have we learned from these NTSB documents? Well, I mean, the NTSB has investigated them and I think brought out, um, you know, a lot of the information. The, uh, the, 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 the takeaway should be that, one, with respect to the systems that are out there, the self-driving systems that are out there, you need to be paying attention all the time. And if you, you know, if you repeatedly drive this one area in which the system doesn't work, well, my goodness, um, you know, don't don't think that it's going to work this time when it hasn't worked a couple other times when you went by there. I mean, you know, it's your responsibility to drive the car, and so you know, the 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 uh, California one, it's kind of you just don't understand the. the uh, there, the individual apparently had complained about the autopilot not working on this left exit ramp, and uh, and sure enough, on the on the on that uh, fateful day, uh, apparently thought it was going to work because because uh, it, it must have been rely on. The other piece of that is if you look at uh, at the images of the um, of that inner, of that diversion there. Uh, the the paint on the road was atrocious. I mean, it, if one was following the lane lines, they basically led you directly into the, into that Jersey barrier, and and 
you know, that's that's a California Department of Transportation problem. When are these departments of transportation uh, going to realize that paint, good paint on the road is important, not for the automated vehicles, it's for us. Because my goodness, if they're confusing or you can't see them to know where in the heck the lane is that you're supposed to be in um, to our, our own visual systems, um, that should be their number one responsibility. So I know that it's not very uh, um, uh, dramatic or whatever if you're out there just painting stripes on roads and uh, you should be building, you know, uh, 14 level uh, intersections and, and adding 12 lanes to everything. Or I don't know if you're a, a traffic engineer and, and construction engineer, what you want to do as, as, a, as a great feat. But my goodness, having good pain and good lane lines uh, should be at the top of the list because that's what we all use to drive down the road. And you know the, uh, the irony of the, the California situations. You know, two weeks earlier, there was a crash there that took out the attenuator, and um, and that wasn't with autopilot. That was with probably some poor human trying to follow the lane lines, being totally confused and slamming into that that thing. And so, come on, California DOT as well as New Jersey DOT, put some good pain out there. We're all trying to just stay in the lane and not crash. It's you you not, see that all the time, especially in some construction areas where they're you know, reconfiguring things. That, and the, well, the paint can be really confusing. It's fine in construction areas. The construction areas are, are you know, two percent of of the of the of our drive time. So yes, there. Slow down. Pay attention. Take it slow, and so on. The problem is, is the the rest of the miles, they are, the paint isn't good, and 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 how expensive can paint be? Come on. Um, you know, don't build one one extra lane someplace, and you've got enough of a of a of a war chest to, to continue to to paint good lines for from now until infinity, so um, uh, or or eternity or whatever. So uh, you know that this this is on California DOT. <clears throat> the, the California crash. Uh, as is one article says, it's uh, eerie similarity to the Joshua Brown crash. It is, you know, some roads that we have built because we happen to have or started with a two lane road, one lane in each direction and decided to build uh, a, a two lanes in each direction, add another roadway just like it, just next to it, but with a wide median are extremely dangerous roads in, in rural conditions. Why? Because anybody making a left turn on one of those has to cross um, a, a, a long median and then come across the oncoming lanes. And those intersections tend to not have uh, uh, traffic signals on them. Uh, they may have a yield sign or they may even have a stop sign for those that are turning. Uh, but otherwise, everybody's on their own to be able to then run across uh, that uh, that lane as you're making the left turn. And uh, those are the situations that occurred in both of those, uh, those Florida crashes in which you had a tractor trailer that apparently, you know, is making a left turn, 
doesn't see the oncoming vehicle and the oncoming vehicle crashes into it. Now, whether or not that oncoming vehicle has, has Tesla autopilot on it or not, um, that, that truck driver uh, that makes that turn uh, didn't see them. And then I suspect in both of these cases and in neither of the cases have they released uh, any of the data from the truck showing the speed at which the truck was going at the time of the crash. Apparently the data doesn't exist, but it seems like the speed was very, very slow. And, uh, and so in a sense, what you have is that you have a, a, tra uh, a tractor trailer making a left turn into uh, some, for some reason, and basically because they didn't see any traffic coming uh, down that lane, uh, basically stopped and stopped with their, um, with their trailer broadside. And here you have a, a Tesla with autopilot on it, uh, now looking at, at an object that is stationary in its lane ahead. And as you'll see from one of the other uh, as, um, links in the e-letter, uh, because it can't properly determine uh, what the clearance is underneath that object, if there is any clearance at all, it disregards it. It says that, my goodness, it must be just an overpass or a tree canopy that, of course, I can pass under it. Uh, why would it be there? And therefore, disregards it. And if it disregards that object, guess what? The brakes don't go on. And therefore, what the, the car then smashes into it. And if it can't pass under it, it uh, results in what happened in those crashes. And I think that is a, a, a really um, a difficult situation that exists in any of these uh, uh, automated emergency braking systems that all they're doing is they're looking for a, a clear surface ahead to travel on as opposed to um, uh, basically being able to clear an object and pass underneath it if in fact it is a stationary object ahead. And the dealing with stationary objects by these systems is really very poor and uh, needs to be improved. So while a lot of other people are worried about whether or not uh, somebody is going to uh, put some phantom objects out there in the visual recognition or try to fool these systems and so on and so forth, what they should do, be really be working on is making these work uh, with the uh, and uh, with the physical and environmental conditions that actually exist out there, and most importantly, how to deal with stationary objects in the lane ahead. This is the fundamental, I think, problem associated with uh, Tesla's crashing into uh, parked fire trucks, uh, Tesla's crashing into um, uh, tractor trailers that that, that basically. Uh, span the lane ahead or uh, or uh, put on the brakes now if um, if it sees a, an overhead uh, um, uh, uh, road uh, that it can pass under uh, but because it can't um, uh, compute uh, exactly what the clearance is uh, the fix has been oh don't disregard it put, apply the brakes uh, which is um, then um, uh, making it not perform well. 
So that's the situation that we're in, and that's probably the most critical situation associated with automated emergency braking. And I hope the NTSB points that out to say, hey, everybody that's working on this code, get it, get it to figure out whether or not you can pass underneath a stationary object ahead, or you really need to brake because you can't. In Washington, uh, Alan, uh, a House panel held another hearing this past week on how best to regulate autonomous vehicles. No surprise, lots of disagreement. Well, yeah, in a sense, um, you know, they can't even, you know, really decide what it is they're, they're trying to regulate. If, if in fact, one is trying to regulate self-driving, where, where you have a driver in the vehicle and, uh, and they're using uh, autopilot or, or other things, uh, what to do about that, or you're really allowed to fall asleep or not allowed to fall asleep and so on. Um, certainly, you're not allowed to be, to, uh, to be um, um, uh, uh, over the limit or if even uh, consume too, or too many uh, adult beverages uh, because, because at some point you're going to have to take over. So certainly it doesn't involve that as opposed to the systems in which you don't have a driver on board, in which it's mobility, they're mobility machines uh, that are out there uh, providing that mobility and to what extent should that be regulated? Should that be, um, uh, what should the hurdles be to, to demonstrate that in fact you're going to be safe in the operational design domain? And then they haven't even started discussing the whole concept of operational design domain. I think they, they went into this, you know, several years ago when it, in some sense the thought of the automobile makers was that they were going to sell these things, these driverless vehicles to individuals and in fact, and, and they would need the capability to go basically from anywhere to anywhere and quickly realize that in fact, uh, no, you, uh, you really have to crawl before you walk. And in the beginning, uh, these things are gonna be heavily restricted in terms of geography, in terms of weather, in terms of, of um, hours of operation as to uh, where, they, uh, where they can operate. And, um, and uh, the, uh, I think the, the, the thought process just isn't there to deal with the practicalities of beginning the deployment and the offering of, um, of this driverless mobility uh, within an operational design domain that, that delivers some value. Um, um, we've been working in New Jersey with the automated vehicle um, uh, task force and uh, we'll be uh, producing a report, uh, our findings soon. And I'm, and I'm very, very, uh, uh, pleased in terms of how we've been progressing in New Jersey, and we'll have an announcement soon on that. Terrific. A, a couple of other uh, quick hits here. Uh, the partnership between Aptiv and Lyft in Las Vegas is continuing, and uh, they've now given over 100,000 paid rides on, on the Lyft app. Yeah, I think that's great, and they should know where where the system works and where where it doesn't work, and and uh, therefore uh, be out there to define an operational design domain that says, "Hey, my goodness, uh, we don't need the driver in this position. Let's start putting it out there, and let's start making some money and provide and delivering some real value to customers and in uh, providing affordable mobility." So um, they should know whether or not the system works. 
and um, maybe they need to tell the people in Las Vegas, hey, it works here and we're going to operate here. It doesn't work there. So uh, maybe we can't take everybody right to the door of every of every casino because uh, some of the situations uh, our systems can't handle it if that's the case. Uh, but they should be able to define an operational design domain and if they're really uh, in, uh, interested in creating a business that's delivering value uh, to customers uh, and, and doing this for real, they should have enough data to do that. Um, uh, if they're not doing that, it must mean that the system doesn't work. From ARS Technica, you, you highlight a piece titled, How LiDAR Makers Are Coping With Slow Progress of Self-Driving Tech. Yeah, because I guess everybody sort of thought that people would be out there, um, you know, with um, thousands of vehicles operating these things. They're they're selling some, but um, it, uh, you know, I, I I don't believe there's a car on the market today that you can go into the uh, dealer and um, and buy that has lidar on it. So uh, therefore, uh, you know, it's only aftermarket. It's only testing. Uh, those are onesie twosies there there's no business in testing uh the business is testing to improve the product so that you can actually go in and 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 sell it and make some money you know if you're doing a lemonade stand um testing uh, whether or not the lemonade is is sweet enough or good enough for somebody that somebody might want to buy it doesn't doesn't make it a business. What makes it a business is when you get out there with your, with your bench and your chair and have the pitcher out there and start selling some of this stuff. And you're going to have a, a lot more uh, on, on this technology, LIDAR and, and other new tech uh, to talk about at the fourth annual Princeton Smart Driving Car Summit. We're going to plug that coming up. Yeah, we might as well plug that. Yes, we're going to deal with, with uh, the sensing technologies as well as um, as uh, what it takes to get started here, to start making it into a business. What makes it so that there is a welcoming of this, of this product, that when it gets put out there on the shelves, people wanna buy. Nobody's gonna be forced to do this. It's, it's gonna be customer driven and, and the customer is somebody who wants mobility, uh, not somebody who wants a toy, not somebody who wants something to, to brag about to their neighbors or not, not you know, it's not, it's not gonna be, a, you know, the, your, your, your father's Oldsmobile. Um, it's, it's going to, this, this is just, hey, I'm trying to get from A to B and I, I wanna use this. Um, and uh, and that people actually want to do it and so you know that's that's where that's where the value to society is that's where the economic value is that's where the 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 10 trillion dollar a year market opportunity is and the mobility piece of this thing and and we have to we have to get started we're, we're i think we're barely started in in phoenix and not hearing anything out of Phoenix is really great because it, you know, customers must just be buying the cereal off the shelf and, and consuming it. Um, and, uh, and it's being continued to be put on the shelf, but now it has to expand from there. Um, you know, this is, this is not about doing a demonstration. This is about delivering value uh, to the American public and, and, um, and the citizenry.
and improving quality of life. That's what this is about. And we're going to steer people to smartdrivingcar.com for more info on the, on the upcoming summit. And finally, Alan, um, you alluded to this before. Under a category in the newsletter that you're calling clickbait, there's a story headlined, Israeli cyber experts manage, manage to fool autonomous vehicle systems with phantom images. <laughs> that came well, from the Cleveland Jewish News. Boy. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess it's a good thing to work on. Probably produce the PhD dissertation for somebody. That's great. But, but we, we have the problem of, of not being able to actually uh, determine whether or not there's clearance under an object ahead to pass underneath it. There's so many other more important things to do. And, you know, people fool me all the time. And I, uh, and I have optical illusions of fool me and, uh, and so on. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not going to be hard to fool these things if the objective is to fool them. Uh, so, you know, like, like many things, uh, nothing, like many, like everything, nothing is perfect. If you really want to sabotage it, you can. And so, great, uh, sure, project some fake images out there and have a couple cars go nuts. Um, um, you know, wonderful, you can do that. Um, it, it's not that hard, okay? Uh, hey, I don't even want to talk about it. It's not that hard to, to make, a, to cause havoc on the, on the 405 out here in LA. I mean, it's, it's easy to do if that's what your intention is. Um, but um, there, there are some very, very challenging things that we need to, that we need to do, and um, and um, and so uh, you know um, uh, we should be working on them. On that note, that'll wrap up this edition. Thanks to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO. And more information is available at MOTOETF.com. We want to thank Jim Hughes for being with us today. Really appreciate it, Jim. Great insight. My pleasure. Jim, it's great to have you because uh, basically what, what you're dealing with are the fundamental forces to all this. And, and so we have, to, we have to look at really be paying attention to uh, you know, the fundamentals here. And uh, we'll take care of the details too, but, uh, but, the, but uh, the fundamentals are really important. Great. Great working with you guys. Thanks, Jim. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. You can get your smart speaker to play us too. You can find my tech reports at textonation.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you so much for listening.